Okay, everybody. Hi, this is Charlie, and this is the podcast To Hell and Back, where we try to bring uh, tools from the world of DBT and sometimes other places to help people with adversity in their lives and suffering. Um, it is the uh, 25th of March, and I'm in Northampton, Massachusetts. It's 6 p.m. East Coast time, and uh, here we go. Um, Gosh, I want to talk to you. Uh, you know, I hesitated to, to, to do this because uh, I'm talking about something that's just all written about and it's taught about all over the world, acting opposite the emo ur emotion urges. You can go read about it. You can probably look it up on Google. You can find it in DBT skills manuals and everything. But, you know, I've taught this for 30 years and it is one of the skills that is a, a couple of different things. One, it is one of the most important skills. It's almost a philosophy of life more than a skill, a little bit like some other skills, like radical acceptance, I would say, is a skill and a philosophy of life. And so is uh, a mindfulness and wise mind. Uh, and, uh, uh, and dear man in being assertive, some of these are just like not, these are not small skills, these are big deals, and this is a big deal. <clears throat> and the problem I've had with it in the DBT world is that the way it's in the manual and the way it's sometimes taught and the way I've tried to teach it, even as recently as last night with a skills group I currently do, um, it's, um, it's somehow the way it's laid out doesn't fully capture the, the uh, potency and the fluidity and the nuance and the subtlety uh, of this skill, this skill and also the context in which you use it. It's somehow you learn these skills, check the facts and act opposite and uh, problem solving as if these are sort of three diamonds in the rough somewhere and in no other context. So I'm, I, I, in my own head, I just, I'm trying to put this in context. Like what, where does this fit in the larger push in DBT and in the world and in our lives to work with our emotions, to regulate our emotions, to make sure that our emotions don't cause us so much suffering and despair and destruction, but instead are sources of energy and force and, uh, and constructive outcomes. So. I was just thinking, yeah, I, I wanna to try to do that with this podcast. And it's sort of a, in my mind, as many of these are, it's kind of a work in progress figuring this out uh, for myself. And probably if I did this an hour from now, it would be different. So just realize that everything changes every minute, including my podcasts. The podcast in my head is not the same as it was an hour ago. So here we go. <clears throat> um, Like I said, a huge task in life for us weary humans is to cope with our emotions. And so when we have emotions that are really uncomfortable or painful, we can really end up in despair if we don't know how to handle them, if we don't know how to be with them, create space for them and work with them. A lot of just being wise emotionally is finding that way to have a relationship with an emotion that emerges out of reality into ourselves 
we encounter something that frightens us and now we have fear in us. It, reality injects emotions into us. Now we have the emotion. What do we do with that emotion? Well, if we're uncomfortable with fear or we're uncomfortable with anger or we're uncomfortable with sadness or shame, we might run away from it. We might move away from that emotion because we actually don't know how to work with it. We don't know how to be with it. And so we end up moving down the road into some form of action, some form of impulsivity uh, that actually we regret and that is, is not represent our best. And it's sort of like our emotion as we experience it ends up experienced as impulse and experienced as action and urges, action urges play a crucial role in all of this because every emotion is wired with several components. And one of those components, and in a way the most, in some ways the most important component is the action urge. It's really the point of an emotion. The point of fear is to help us get away from danger. The point of anger might be for us to fight for justice. The point of sadness might be to create space for ourselves to grieve. The point of shame might be to help us avoid doing things that damage our communities or that help us reconnect with our communities. Every emotion is there, is, is a potent force towards some constructive possible outcome of preserving ourselves, preserving our communities, preserving our loved ones, uh, or solving a problem. So actually action urges are wonderful things. They are probably the reason that emotions have continued to exist through tens of thousands of years is that they actually accomplish these things. Otherwise it's just sort of like, uh, you know, it, it wouldn't have the same potency, but the action that comes with an emotion, the movement that comes out of an emotion is really what is the force that makes the emotion work, that gives the emotion a function and that helps the emotion uh, get into the next generation uh, because it keeps us alive or it preserves our communities. So, we might, so the action urge is like, like just one piece of an emotion. In the last two podcasts, I've gone over the different pieces of an emotion, but, um, but the action urges deserve special attention. Next thing I wanna say about action urges is that when you have action urges, they can be, and I'm gonna be oversimplifying this in this next comment, but then we can break it down later. But it helps me to oversimplify it first. Urges can be constructive and urges can be destructive. So what's a constructive urge? Constructive urge is that if I am encountering genuine danger in my life, fear gets me to move away from it and it helps me take action. I would say, if you've got that kind of action urge, ride on it, go with it, you know, gallop away on it. If, you, if your sadness leads you to stay in your room and, and cry, if somebody who's uh, made Mark will get that. Um, so somebody somebody needs to mute their uh mute themselves on this thank you thank you did um 
So you can see that the action urge is often a very constructive thing. It's what it's in a way it's why it's there. And I would say a lot of the time action urges deserve no attention at all because they're just working. They're under the radar. You don't need to do anything. It gets you to do good stuff. It gets you to do stuff you need to do. It gets you to do stuff that keeps you safe. So action urges are really good things when they're good things. So where's the problem? Action, there's another sort of category of action urges, and then there's everything in between the two categories. But the category is destructive action urges. What do I mean by that? I mean that sometimes the way we have experienced our lives, the way we've been raised, and the way we experience our emotions is so painful. And we haven't learned the tools to cope with our emotions. And so when we get uh, injected with an emotion, we're now filled with it and we're really uncomfortable and we might be really miserable and we might be suffering with it. And so we have the urge to avoid it. We have the urge to escape from that emotion. We have anger, but we never learn to see the value of anger and experience anger as a constructive force in ourselves. We just experienced it in our family as something damaging or destructive, or we think that we're destructive. And therefore we, we get anger, which is a perfectly normal emotion. And then we have to do something to block our mind from anger. So we no longer even recognize we're angry. And so we escape from the emotion. We have an urge to get away. We avoid the emotion. We have an urge to keep away from that emotion. We bury the emotion in our addictions so that we don't even experience it as an emotion. We experience our emotion as an addiction. Um, we bring our emotion into through an urge into uh, some form of destructive activity, something that we really wouldn't be happiest and that doesn't move us towards our goals. So you can see there's all these things that happen with action urges when emotions are not well handled. And so it's important to distinguish these because some, somehow you think when you hear about DBT and action urges and you've got to act opposite the urge. No, you don't. Most urges you do not need to do that. Most urges you don't need to do that much about. And sometimes the best thing to do with an urge is to realize that it gives you energy and maybe you can channel that energy. Like for instance, as I've talked about in one podcast before, one of the emotions that's been most painful in my own life has been envy. And I've talked about that and the sources of that in me. So I know something about it, but it still can be uh, painful. And so I might want to bury my envy in, in non-recognition or in maybe I'll have the urge when I see somebody else who has something I think is really cool or some do something really well that I wish I was doing as well, that I envy that person. And so where might I go with that? I might try to discredit that person. And discrediting is an urge, the urge to discredit the person who's doing better than me, who has something I don't have, who has something I wish I had. That would be something I might recognize. You know what? I'm noticing I have this urge to discredit people. And actually it doesn't in a way make much sense in the world for me to be discrediting people who are actually doing what I wish I was doing. So actually, if you can get hold of the energy of envy, you can turn it in the more constructive direction. And the constructive direction might be, you know what, let me build my life the way I want my life to be. Let me count my own blessings. 
let me see that actually I've done some cool things where I could think of that way. Um, let me do cool things that I see someone else doing, but I, I, I don't want to just sit back and discredit them or look at them or feel hungry or envious. I want to do it myself. So those would be very constructive. So sometimes you can notice the urge and notice it's moving in a, in a deflective, destructive, escapist, suppressive, whatever direction. And then you realize it and you still capture the energy and you might be able to turn that energy towards, like anger can certainly be that way. The urge with anger could be very destructive, but it also can be incredibly constructive. And you can take that anger energy and go in a direction that really builds something or that, or that fixes something, right? So that's where action urge sits. I, I wanna lay out to you, I wanna put, uh, this context a little broader. It helps me put this whole uh, action urge skill in place. Imagine that life is a board game. Okay. It's a board game, sort of like shoots and ladders or something like that. And there, and there's four lands, L-A-N-D-S, in this board game. And they go from right to left. And over to the right, Let's see where you are, that'd be over here. Now, over to the right is the land of action and impulse. That's where all the action's happening. Constructive action, destructive action, good controlled action, out of control action. It's the land of impulse and action. And sometimes we live there for a while. If we, I'm gonna lay out the board game first before I go through the, uh, the rules of the game. So moving from right to left, um, you go into the land of urges and cravings. Like for instance, if you're busy with actions, if you're doing destructive actions in your life, you're doing stuff you wish you weren't doing and you get it under control. Because the job in the land of impulse and action, if you're doing things that are destructive, is to get it under control. And you want to get insight into it. You want to get uh, mindful of it. You want to be aware of what you're doing. And you want to curb your tendencies. You want to block your impulses. You want to block your actions. And you want to sort of straighten that out. But what does that do to you? It moves you to the next land. So if you get control of your land of impulse and action, you find yourself in the land of urges and cravings. Now, in the land of urges and cravings, you have these urges and cravings to move towards the impulse and action. Like there's this pressure to go back left again or back right again, I swear to God. Um, I've got sort of directional dyslexia here. Um, so you move, you're moving in, you're, 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 you feel the pressure to move back to do, let's say, let's say what you do when you have a, an uncomfortable emotion that you've had too much of. It moves you into urges, because by the way, the next land over from the land of urges and actions is going to be the land of emotions and thoughts. So now we've gone from, so you're in the land of emotions and thoughts, but actually you can't stand it there because you just have an emotion that's really hard to bear. And so where do you go? You just move right over into the land of urges and, and cravings. And then you think, all right, now, uh, what am I going to, where am I going to go? How am I going to get away from these emotions? and you head down the road of impulse and action. And so that's part of the game is those are three of the lands, three of the four lands of the, 
of the game and they're very interrelated to each other. And you do the work of the work, the work of the land of impulse and action moves you into the land of, ur of, of urges and, and in, of urges and cravings. And if you do the work in the land of urges and cravings of acting opposite the urge, when that's appropriate, it'll move you into the land of emotions and thoughts, which can be a very uncomfortable land to be in. Of course, all of these are uncomfortable lands to be in until you resolve more of it. So now you're in the land of, of, of emotions and, um, and, 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 that's, and that's painful. And you feel like going back down into the land of urges and cravings. There's just always this fluidity of back and forth and sometimes you move back and forth among them. So now you're in the land of emotions and thoughts. And maybe your emotions and thoughts are, you know, you walked by someone on the street and that's where the other land comes in, reality. So over to your far left is the land of facts and reality. So now you've got facts, you bump into facts and reality every day, don't you? I'm bumping into it right now, just talking to you. I mean, it's the fact and reality of doing a podcast. And that creates emotions in me, right? So maybe it's anxiety. Maybe if I don't do it very well, it's shame. Maybe if I'm disappointing myself, it's sadness. And then maybe that's hard to bear one of these things. Maybe my anxiety is hard to bear. So then, I'm, then I feel like I got to get the hell out of here. Why am I doing this? I'm never going to do another podcast. So that's, the, that's moving into the urges and, and uh, urges and cravings. I have the urge to get the hell out of here. And then I get out of here and I never do a podcast again. And then I'm disappointed in myself because I find something meaningful about doing podcasts. There was a reason I do them from the beginning, but now I gave it up. Why did I give it up? Because I couldn't stand land number two, which was the emotions. Right, So we're always bumping into reality and reality is always setting off emotions and emotions are setting off action, cravings and, and urges and cravings and urges are moving us down into the land of impulse and action. So the larger picture is that. And, and really what, before I get and bear down into the land of urges and cravings where I wanna spend a little more time, let me just say something about the land of emotions. You know, it's uh, so much is said about regulating emotions. Well, I just wanna give a couple. One of the problems when you act opposite, which we'll get to, but you already pretty much get the basic idea, I'm sure, is you act opposite the urge to run away. You act opposite the urge to deflect, to suppress, to destroy, to bury your head in the sand or in an addiction. One of the problems with acting opposite is it thrusts you right into the heart of the emotion that you've just been running away from. So it's a very important thing to do, but it's only part of the job. So if you only learn opposite action, you're stuck. If you learn opposite action, you learn, okay, now I'm having the urge to get away from doing podcasts. Okay, so what do I do? I'm gonna act opposite that urge. Oh, what will I do? I'm gonna do podcasts. I'm gonna keep doing podcasts. What does that do? Well, if I'm having trouble with my emotional response to doing podcasts, now I'm stuck. I'm in the trap. I'm in the prison of emotions that I don't know how to regulate. So you really can't just do acting opposite. You have to do acting opposite as a push off from urges and cravings, pushing you into the world of emotions. But then you have to have some capabilities to be with the emotions. So, so one, of the, one of the big ones in DBT, of course, is mindfulness. If you learn to be mindful of your emotions, if you learn to have a difficult emotion 
and breathe in and say, breathing in, I notice my despair. Breathing out, I notice my despair. Breathing in, I notice my shame. Breathing out, I'm aware of my shame. Any of these practices, like breathing in and breathing out, or being mindful of emotions in your body, or being mindful of the thoughts that are associated with the emotions, any of these things that help you recruit your inherent capacity to be mindful in a stronger and stronger way so that you can always turn to it. As Thich Nhat Hanh teaches, he'll say, bring the Buddha into yourself. The Buddha will help you take care of your anger. The Buddha will help you take care of your shame and your fear, which really just means your own capacity to be mindful will help you take care of this. So you've got to have that worked out and have some degree of capability. You know, another important capability, I learned this one when I was trying to deal with my extreme anxiety about public speaking. And I've talked about this many, 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 many podcasts ago, God knows how many. Um, but I talked about this whole work I had to do if I wanted to do public speaking because it would send such terror into me that I would be, I would, I would, I'd have the urge, see, because I couldn't stand just being with the anxiety about public speaking and what, how it might go. So I would have the urge to over-prepare, to com get compulsive, and for days in advance, prepare, 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 write up what I'm going to say, and the night before, read it and say, this is shit, and then write it up again, and then three in the morning, be awake, thinking about it, thinking, oh my God, I'm about to make a complete ass of myself. I better start over on this. And I get up at 3.30 in the morning and sit there and write it until eight. Then I have to go to where I'm going and give a talk. And so I used to go through this for quite a while, probably not, not uncoincidentally. I also was an arrow during which I had a lot of migraine headaches. I'm just realizing right now that that, that was the same era. I'm just not sure I've ever put it quite together that way, but that I was very anxious in the middle of the night thinking of these things. And so I would, so I had to work on this. I had to act opposite the urge to actually fix this, to actually learn to regulate my anxiety about public speaking. I had to one step in that process and realize that's the important thing is seeing this acting opposite skill is one, always one part of a series of steps. So one step I had to do was act opposite the urge to over-prepare. So I had to stop over-preparing. So I went through a sequence while seeing a behavior therapist who guided me in this before I understood it. I was still a psychoanalyst at that point. And I saw this guy who was a behavior therapist in New York City. And he said, no, Charlie, here's what you have to do. In the next five talks you're gonna give, the first one, you can have two hours to prepare. The second one, an hour and a half. The third one, an hour. The fourth one, a half hour. And the last one, no preparation at all. He said, oh my God, I'm just terrified thinking of this. No, I can't do that. He says, then you don't have, you don't have to. We're just talking about whether you wanna fix this or not. <sighs> so I did it. And actually, Here's what happened. I acted opposite the urge to escape into my over-preparation, which by the way, probably never made a talk go better. It just made me more secure, but not very secure. It actually didn't get me any better at this. And so 
you know, but here's what happened. I figured out how to deal with the anxiety, but I wouldn't have figured it out unless I let go of the over-preparation. But once I was immersed in giving talks without any preparation, um, then I realized here was my saving grace and it wasn't mindfulness per se. In this case, it was more of, of self-talk. So I found that if I was in the middle of giving a talk or about to give a talk, the way I, this even still works now with podcasts, though my anxiety is way less than it used to be. But it's sort of like if I'm getting anxious, I start thinking, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I say to myself, you know what, Charlie, if you just stand there in front of those people and open your mouth, and if you have a few things in your head about this topic, they will come out. They might not come out in the most elegant form. They might not come out in the way you wish you had written it up, but actually they're in there. And if you just open your mouth and let yourself speak while you're thinking about this stuff, that's what a talk is. And somehow it's, somehow I grasp the idea. It's a lot simpler than I thought. It's just, and it's never perfect. So it's just sort of like, okay, get up there and talk, get up there and talk, get up there and talk. And that was my saving grace. And then I could go into the land of anxiety with giving a talk. All right. So I just wanted to make those comments about those are by far not the only skills for being with a painful emotion, but those are two things, being mindful of it and letting yourself be aware of it and just being with it and creating space for it, but also talking to yourself in a way that helps you get through it, which reminds me. There was a uh, thing I saw on the internet. Maybe some of you have seen it. Um, I never know how big the world is, you know, whether anyone else ever sees what I also see, but I'm sure somebody else did. It was this, this, this skiing family, downhill skiing family. And they had their, they had, their three-year-old started to learn to ski when he was 12 months old. And now he's three years old. And so the dad did the following thing. He put a microphone on the three-year-old Without, and, and then the three-year-old went skiing down the mountain and you could hear all of the self-talk going on. You would hear this, this three-year-old is talking his way down the mountain. And it was so cute. And it was so representative of what I'm talking about, especially with respect to ice. I tried to learn to downhill ski when I was beginning at age 62 and ice just terrified me. And even a tiny patch, would I would just sit down. Well, he would. this kid wouldn't sit down. He'd just go down and he's like, going along and he's going back and forth. And then he would say, he would say, I see you there, Mr. Ice. I'm not going to go on you, Mr. Ice. I'm going around you. I'm going to go on Mr. Snow. <laughs> sort of like, I thought, wow, that was so cool. I mean, this three-year-old is, is doing what I learned when I was like in my fifties. I mean, he's like, uh, he's talking his way through this thing out loud and he's smoothly and skillfully like negotiating these slopes. So anyway, there's lots of ways to regulate an emotion, but I just wanted to make the point that I didn't used to grasp myself because I used to think of acting opposite the emotion urge as this separate thing you do. But actually it's part of a flow. It's part of the flow that comes after you have given up impulsive action and before you've gotten good at being with your emotions. It's in the land number two, you might say, of the four lands I just described. So what do you do in the land of, of uh, urges and cravings? Well, you, first of all, you do bring mindfulness to bear. All through these things, you bring mindfulness to bear. It's just such a core thing. It is just sort of like your life-saving thing. 
is to be able to be mindful of whatever. And so when you're in the land of urges and cravings is to be mindful of your urges and your cravings. I mean, that doesn't solve anything necessarily right there, but it lays the groundwork to solve it. So it creates a little space around it. So you are not just consumed by your urges and cravings. You actually are aware that you're consumed by your urges and cravings, which means there's another level at which you are not consumed with your urges and cravings. You're just being mindful. And the more you can identify with the part of you that's just mindful of your urges and cravings, it actually strengthens you and gives you more choices. So, you know, that's not easy to do, but I think that's a really important step. And there's a lot of ways probably to get there. That's a whole talk in itself. But so now let's say you're mindful of an urge. Let's say you have social anxiety and uh, you're terrified of social situations. Maybe some people listening have had that, or you know people who've had it, or you can apply it to some other situation you have that you are terrified of, or that you are uh, not well regulated with. So let's say you are a highly, highly socially anxious person, and somebody you know says, hey, I'm going to a party tonight. Why don't you come with me? And you're like, ah, you know, you now have bumped into reality. The reality is just this other person comes in and asks you, you want to go to a party? And you're like terrified. You're already terrified. It's like the public, public speaking person or the person who has a spider phobia or the person who's afraid to go outside. It's like, oh my God, oh my God, I don't go to parties. I'm not the kind of person who goes to parties. That's an escape itself. That reframing of things. I'm not the kind of person that goes to parties. Just choose not to go to parties if you want. But actually you're terrified of parties. So actually you're trying to regulate your terror by having an urge to not go to the party, you make up some excuses and your friend says, I know you, you just don't wanna to go to parties, but I want you to come with me. Come on, let's go to the party. And you're like, oh my God, I just can't go to the party. And so you're, you're really filled up with the urge to get out of this situation. You are caught right next to the land of emotions. You're caught in the land of urges now. It's like, how do I get out of this? How do I get out of this? How do I get out of this? And so of course, there's a little part of you that wishes you weren't so uncomfortable with social situations. There's a little part of you that feels like that's compromising your life. Your little part of you that wishes you could just sort of like do what you see other people doing, like getting together with other people and not feeling like everybody's going to judge them and everybody's going to think there's something wrong with them. Like, wouldn't that be nice, of course. So you kind of wish you could do that. So you're not willing to totally give up on it, but you're kind of afraid of it. All right, so that, let's say, let's use that as our example and talk about the urges, the urge. So the urge there is to not be social. And there might be lots of reasons for it. We get conditioned. You get conditioned from bad social experiences. You get conditioned from things you've watched. You get conditioned partly because you have a biology that already lends itself to being socially anxious. Some kids are kind of born anxious coming out of the womb more than others. Um, and it just builds from there and you get invalidated as a kid about who you are or what's wrong with you. So you don't wanna show your face anywhere when, in a group of people, you don't know what to say and you think you're gonna say stupid stuff. So you just kind of like, so you have the urge, absolutely you are injected with the emotion of anxiety about it. Now you're injected with the urge of getting away from it. Um, but now you're gonna to try to get yourself to do it. So. Now we come to acting opposite the urge. Because the reason you want to act opposite the urge is that you've decided that this urge is not good for you. 
this direction is not a good direction for you. Like I said earlier in this talk, I mean, most of your urges are just fine. Just ride them. Get on that urge like, like a ski slope and just go because it's probably going to be a very good thing. And maybe you'll make a mistake now and then, but by and large, they're pretty. But this kind of urge to get out of something that actually might be good for you would maybe from Linehan's point of view be considered an ineffective choice, an ineffective urge. It's ineffective with respect to having a life worth living. It's ineffective with respect to what your goals are and what your values are. You want to be a person who can do these things. So therefore, it's kind of an ineffective urge. It's an ineffective direction. So you want to do something about it. So you want to act opposite that urge. Also, the other thing, so, so here's the steps. I think I said in my little write-up about this podcast, though I don't remember exactly what I said, but I said something about, I wanted to talk about the functions of acting opposite as a skill but also the formula of acting opposite as a skill and some of the nuances of acting opposite as a skill. So the formula, which is written in the book, which you know I'm not gonna be adding very much to, but many people who listen to these podcasts are not actually DBT therapists. They're not actually in DBT programs. So this is for anybody. So I wanna walk through it. Step one, you recognize that you have an uncomfortable emotion, a painful emotion, a miserable emotion, that an emotion makes you suffer, that you feel out of, like a fish out of water with a certain emotion. So you start out by recognizing an emotion. And, you, and it's something that you would like to make more comfortable. You'd like to reduce your discomfort. That's really the whole point of acting opposite the emotion. It's when you realize that you have an emotion you don't regulate very well, which just means you're not very, you don't know how to work with it very well. So what's the next step? The next step is that you figure out, um, is this emotion um, in sync with reality, the land of reality? Is this in sync with reality or is this really out of sync? Is this disproportionate to reality? Is this a bad read of reality? Are you misreading reality? You know, I've talked before about somebody I saw a long time ago, a high school kid who had a crush on a guy who had never talked to him. You know, the kind of crushes, I had crushes like that. Most crushes I had, I never talked to the person I couldn't stand. I was too scared of talking to the very person I had a crush on. So this, this happened to this um, girl. She had a crush on this boy. You couldn't talk to him. And he walked by her locker. One day he did talk to her in a group of people. He said hello, which was thrilling to her. But the next, and so now she's like totally over the moon with, oh my God, David talked to me. It's like, it's made my life worthwhile. Kind of sad, you know, but true. <laughs> it's not, not uncommon. And then um, David walks by when she's at the end of the school day at her locker and he didn't say anything. So she comes in and talks to me and she says, oh my God, David just walked right by me. He just ignored me. And I said, what do you mean he ignored you? So I understand he walked by you. Yeah, he walked by me, he didn't say anything. Okay, I got that, he didn't say anything. But, but when you say he ignored you, that seems to imply something a little more. Well, yeah, he obviously didn't wanna see me. He didn't wanna to talk to me. I mean, as a creepy girl like me, of course he didn't wanna to talk to me. Cause you know, why would he wanna to talk to me? Nobody cool ever wants to talk to me. So, um, so he was ignoring me. 
and I just wouldn't let go of this. In fact, I got a little obnoxious um, I, because I felt like there was a misread of reality. She might've been right. Maybe he ignored her on purpose. I said to her just to try to challenge it. Did you say hello to him? Of course not. Well, why, why not? Well, because I mean, you just don't do that. You're, you're not in high school, you're older. I mean, you probably don't remember what it's like to be in high school. No, you don't, you don't just say hello if you're a girl and a guy is walking by, really, wow. So yeah, but so I said, but, but I bet he's with his therapist right now talking about you and how you ignored him. No, that's crazy. He wouldn't be doing that. I said, you have no idea what teenage boys are like. I do remember that. And that's something I have over you. I know what it was to be a teenage boy. And teenage boys are very strange animals. You would, it's very hard to read them. He might've been dying to talk to you, but it would be the last thing he would ever do. So he walked by your locker. That's pretty good. Oh no. So, you know, um, so she had this emotion where she was devastated. And it was partly based on a misread of reality. Her add-on, reality, yeah, he walked by, that's disappointing. But to say he ignored her, and I said, you, he ignored you, says something about you. She says, well, yeah, who would ever want to be with me? I said, well, that's even, that's even a more damning statement about yourself. That's terrible. What do you mean who would ever want to be with you? And so she misread reality in the direction of there's something wrong with me and no one would ever want to be with me. And she read a lot of realities like that. That was sort of a bias she carried with her. So that was a misread of reality. So that's an important thing to see. And it's an important thing when you get to the acting opposite skill, because step two is to ask yourself, is this emotion that I'm uncomfortable with, this is the emotion that I'm feeling, is it justified by the facts of reality, by objective reality, or is it my add-on into reality? Because if it is, then you might wanna challenge this emotional response. You might wanna challenge your read of reality. And when it gets to acting opposite the urge, you might decide to act opposite the urge that goes with this, because the urge that she had was, of course, I'll never talk to him again, I'm never going to go to math class again where I sit opposite him or next to him. And I'm never going to talk to a boy again. And actually she felt like harming herself. So she had all these urges that actually were going to go against her larger goals in life. Um, so that was going to be ineffective, but it also started out with a misread of reality. So Linehan emphasizes both of these things when you're deciding whether to do acting opposite the urge, you ask yourself, is this emotion that I'm unhappy with, is it a misread of reality or is it an accurate read of reality? And that's called checking the facts. And that's not what we're talking about so much today, but that's a step in this process. So now what do you do? You decide, okay, maybe this is a, a good read of reality. Uh, and if it is a good read of reality, maybe I, what I should do is fix reality. Maybe my misery is because of reality. Maybe I should go talk to this boy. Maybe I should, you know, just act different about it. Maybe I should pick on someone else. Um, maybe I should radically accept that he may or may not 
be interested in me. And that actually isn't the end of the world. So there's a lot of ways to work with reality. But if reality and your emotion are in sync with each other, maybe the way to change your emotion is to, is to address the problem in reality that's setting off your emotion, right? So that would be one thing. But the other question that gets asked as part of this sequence is, is this emotion gonna be effective in a direction that I'd like to go? Or is this an ineffective direction? So now, step one, what's the uncomfortable emotion? Step two, is the emotion in sync with reality or is it out of sync with reality? And by doing that, you have to figure out, somehow check out the facts of the matter. Number three, this help that now you're gonna be deciding whether you're gonna do acting opposite, but you wanna figure out what is the urge, what's the action urge associated with this emotion? So the action urge of the person with the social anxiety is to avoid the party. And then if you go to the party, certainly avoid conversation. Right? Now you've got this action urge. If you're me doing public speaking, the action urge is to over-prepare. Um, and so now you've got the action urge. Now you ask yourself, well, if I wanna go against this action urge, in other to, in, as part of my process of changing how I regulate this emotion, I've gotta not end up going with this action urge. I've gotta oppose this acting action urge. How do I oppose it? And here's where there's subtlety and nuance that sometimes people don't appreciate when they first learn this skill. Because when you learn this skill, you can see in the book and you can understand, and it's perfectly good instruction, that the action urge that usually goes with fear is to run. The action urge that usually goes with anger is to strike out at something or somebody. The action urge that goes with shame is to hide things, right? But actually, those are just formulaic. It's very more specific than that. Like you have to ask yourself, what is your actual own action urge? Not everybody would over-prepare if they're anxious about public speaking. Some people might under-prepare and just go up and blab you know, and not, not even think at all because they're afraid to even think about it. They don't want to prepare for it because it makes them anxious, right? Other people might actually get sick the day of the talk and not show up. Other people might get drunk the day of the talk and not show up or show up intoxicated or something like that. So there's a lot of possibilities of how people would, what your action urge. So you actually have to ask yourself, what is my action urge and what is the opposite of my action urge? How would I oppose this urge? And you really have to understand the point of the action urge in order to figure out what's the, how to oppose it in a way that moves you, like swims you right into the heart of the emotion. That's what you're looking for. Is you're, as, as, as Marshall Linehan would teach it, you're going into the fire. Instead of running away from the fire, you are going into the fire. You're going through the fire. You're going into that emotion. And if you're going to go into that emotion, you have to go against the urge to get away from it in such a way that injects you right into the center of the emotion. I do picture swimming. I was thinking about, you know, what happens with uh, riptides. Not everybody might know what riptides are, but anybody near an ocean probably would. And so a riptide is when you're swimming along and you get caught up in a current that is pulling you out to sea. And it's, and it's because of the configuration of the structures of what, of the, what the configuration that the water's in. And you have these riptides that really can kill you. I mean, you have to figure out how to work with the riptide. And so 
I've, I was thinking about that and, and it's too complicated what my thinking is about that to share with you. So I'm just sharing with you that I thought about riptides got me into the metaphor of swimming and thinking of how much acting opposite could be a metaphor, could be based on a metaphor like now you're swimming away from what's dangerous, you're gonna to have to swim into what's dangerous. Because actually with a riptide, the interesting thing is that what riptides get a lot of people to do is to do exactly the wrong thing. A riptide is pulling you out to sea and you swim against it because you get frightened, you're getting pulled out to sea. And if you do that, you wear yourself out. And most people that die in riptides are the ones who are trying to fight it because they don't understand it. And so you want to just go with the riptide. So in this case, it's a little different. That's why it's complicated because it doesn't line up the same way as I'm talking. But you know, the idea is that you swim into the heart of the emotion. You swim into the very thing that's going to make you afraid of giving a public talk. You swim, if you're socially anxious, you go to the party. So you figure out the opposite of the urge and then you decide to do it. And when you decide to do it, the next step is you do it all the way. And why is that so important? Well, because if you, if you swim into the emotion, if you go against the urge and, and inject yourself into the painful emotion, but you leave a 10% margin, like you do it 90% of the way, you never do it. There's always that 10% that you're convinced is the, was the saving grace. That 10% becomes like a 90% thing. It's not a small thing. If you partly, like let's say you go to the party. And when you go to the party, there's 40 people there milling around. And they're in groups and they're talking and they're having drinks and, and they're some are laughing, some are talking, some know each other, some don't know each other. And you enter into the room and you're like, oh shit, what am I going to do now? And so what you do is you see one person that you remember from the past and you make a beeline to that person and you spend the whole evening with that person sitting down at the punch bowl and having punch together and you never actually interact with anyone else. So then you come back to your therapist and you say, I went, I went to the party. I, I, I did it, I acted opposite. Well, what did you do at the party? Well, actually you like only, you did like a 10% exposure. You went to the party, but you acted like all you were on a, on a thing with one person who was a comfort, comfortable, familiar friend. No, if you go to the party, as the way Linehan would talk about it, you have to take your brain to the party. Your brain has to be in the party. You have to circulate from group to group and look at people and feel the fear in your legs as if you're gonna fall down and experience that and be mindful of that and cope with that and remind yourself, it's okay, you can do it. Nobody actually gonna spit on you, throw you out, throw eggs at you, throw tomatoes at you or tell you you're a bad person. They're just gonna kind of like do their thing and you gotta find your way in and it's gonna be hard. But once you learn to do it, once you learn the trick that's gonna work for you, you have transformed your social life forever as I did with the public speaking thing. It, that little episode of five consecutive talks with less and less preparation really transformed my public speaking life forever. There's, it's never been the same since that. It's one of the things that has convinced me the power of exposure treatment is that how well that worked, uh, how, how long it has endured. So you have to go against the urge. You have to do it all the way so that you don't leave any stones unturned and you have to go back to another party that has different kind of people and do it again and try further. 
and then do it again. And so the last step of this, in, if you look at the protocol in the manual, is the last step is you do this frequently enough and as many times enough so that actually that emotion begins to change. So actually the point isn't to go act opposite the action urge, the point is to put yourself into an emotion and to experience that emotion and to feel the fear and to feel like getting out of it, but to stay in. And when you do that, you learn how to stay in. And once you learn how to stay in, you can extrapolate from that and you can generalize from that and stay in. And it actually makes you more capable with, with maybe another emotion that you hadn't even thought about before that's also difficult for you. You realize, oh, I can do it with fear. Maybe I can do it with shame. Maybe I can actually go opposite the urge of shame to, to think that I've done something so terrible that, that I can't tell anybody. And yet when you think about reality and you think about how intense your shame is, you realize, you know, they're not really in sync. What I did is actually not that terrible. It didn't actually kill anybody. It didn't even humiliate anybody. It didn't do anything terrible. I just think I made an ass of myself the way I acted at that, at that situation. But actually it was not a terrible thing, but I feel terrible. So once you realize that there's this dyssynchrony between reality and then you might say, you know what? I'm hiding this too much. If I, if I want to change my tendency to be ashamed of myself and to even hate myself sometimes, I'm gonna have to like inject myself into that situation where I actually express myself. And I actually even talk about my vulnerabilities. And I actually even say what a stupid thing I did and how terrible I feel about it or whatever it was. And I actually am opening myself up to interaction with other people. And actually, once I do that a few times, I find that my shame goes down. It doesn't go away, by the way. I just want to give you a tip because I'm 72 years old or almost, and, I'm, and I've done a lot of these things. These things almost never go away, in my opinion. Maybe I'm just not good enough at doing it. But even the fear of public speaking, every I've done like 80 podcasts or something like that. Every single one of them for the period of time before the podcast is I'm, I'm still having my own mini version of what I used to go through. Like, oh no, what am I going to say? How am I going to start? I mean, how am I going to follow up with that? Oh my God, do I have anything written down? I mean, uh-oh, what, what if I only have three minutes and yet I'm supposed to go for 60? It's like, you know, I go into these crazy things, you know, and then I get going. And once I get going, I'm going like I am now. And I think, well, this isn't perfect. And if, if somebody asks me afterwards, how did the podcast go? I'd probably say, you know, it was, it was all right. I mean, I think, you know, but, but I just... My point with the podcast, what saves me with the podcast is I remind myself of the whole point of doing the podcast. And that gets me through. The whole point of doing the podcast from the beginning was not in order to do perfect podcasts. Anyone who knows about podcasts and watched mine would know that. But it also, the point of mine was actually to explore something more deeply so that I understand something better after I do the podcast than before I did it. Even if nobody ever watched it or listened to it that it still would serve its purpose. And once I remember that, I think, all right, it's working. I'm actually refining my thinking about an area of teaching and, and doing skills myself. So actually it works. So you gotta find a way to get you through and stay within the emotion, whether it's mindfulness or something you say to yourself or just something you discover along the way. And you will discover it. 
you will discover it. Um, and, and just to finish the point I was making, but don't expect that it means you will never be afraid again in those situations, or you'll never be ashamed again. You know, or if you're somebody who's terrified of uh, riding horses, that, that you somehow will master that and you'll be comfortable the rest of your life riding horses. No, you'll probably always have a little trepidation and a little fear about things. So you just remember that, that this is really not to eliminate your discomfort with an emotion. It's to make an emotion more comfortable. It's to give you more space and to make it possible and feel a little safer in the world so that you feel like life is a little, a little more possible to find something satisfying and your terror goes down a little bit um, and your despair about yourself goes down a little bit. So, you know, modest goals, but I think, I think these are incredible skills. And so um, I'm gonna stop in just a minute, but I do wanna just, just say that I think those of you who are teaching opposite action to other people, I just think you wanna find your own way of weaving it into real stories and into a, a, a multi-step process because otherwise I swear from the time I learned opposite action through DBT to even more recently when I get ready to teach it, if you look at the manual, it has all these little boxes and algorithms and makes, which distracts you from what a human process this is. This is such a natural process that children do it by the time they're three years old. You, you've got to like lean in to an uncomfortable situation and find a way to cope with it. And that means you have to act opposite the urge to get out of it or to destroy it or to bury yourself in addictions um, and use mindfulness all the way through. So there you go, another, another podcast. <laughs> so those of you who are actually here with me live, I appreciate it. Um, because, uh, you know, I once watched Steve Martin give a talk about how he became a comedian and how he thought of comedy. He's brilliant. And he just gave this three hour talk sitting on a stool about and, and how he used to go and do stand up comedy when he was first doing it. And he would go to a restaurant that wanted him to do it. And by the time he got there, there'd be no customers but the guy was paying him 10 or $20 to do it. So the guy said, you got to do it. So he'd stand up on the stage by himself with the restaurateur guy there and he would do his stand-up act or maybe he'd have three people there or five people there and two of them were busy with each other. It's sort of like, so it's kind of like you have to find this way of, uh, of doing these things if they matter to you. And of course, we're only talking about doing things if they actually are part of your valued goals in life. So I hope you guys, uh, everybody listening now and, and into the future, if you listen to this podcast or watch or watch this Zoomcast, I hope you found it useful. And uh, yeah, thanks. Um, good luck with acting opposite. <laughs> nice to see you guys. Bye.